For our scripture reading this morning, we turn to Amos 8. It's considering reading also Amos 9, but you can read that at home. Amos 9 is the end of the book and where God also presents the promises of the gospel, his redemption. It's a book worth reading. Amos 8 captures much of the entire book, good summary of it, but good to read the book. I would also recommend to you also uh, sometime, good, good activities for a Sunday, uh, to listen to uh, the sermon series that was made by Professor Engelsma many years ago that our evangelism committee is digitizing and putting on uh, sermon audio it's a series called The Lion Has Roared, wonderful series on this short minor book of a minor prophet. Amos 8, thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold a basket of summer fruit. And he said, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a basket of summer fruit. And said the Lord unto me, the end is come upon my people of Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the songs of the temple shall be howlings in that day, saith the Lord God. There shall be many dead bodies in every place. They shall cast them forth with silence. Hear this, O ye that swallow up the needy, even to make the poor of the land to fail, saying, when will the new moon be gone that we may sell corn and the Sabbath that we may set forth wheat, making the ephah small and the shackle great and falsifying the balances by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of shoes, yea, and sell the refuse of the wheat. The Lord has sworn by the excellency of Jacob, surely I will never forget any of their works. Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwelleth therein? And it shall rise up wholly as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day, and I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation, and I will bring up sackcloth upon all loins, and baldness upon every head, and I will make it as the mourning of an only son, and the end thereof as a bitter day. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord God, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. And they shall wander from sea to sea, and from the north even to the east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, and shall not find it. In that day shall the fair virgins and young men th faint for thirst, 
They that swear by the sin of Samaria and say, Thy God, O Dan, liveth, and the manner of Beersheba liveth, even they shall fall and never rise up again. We read that far in God's Word. And consider this morning the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 42. <clears throat> What doth God forbid in the Eighth Commandment? God forbids not only those thefts and robberies which are punishable by the magistrate, but he comprehends under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right is by unjust weights, L's measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coins, usury, or by any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness, all abuse and waste of his gifts. But what doth God require in this commandment? That I promote the advantage of my neighbor in every instance I can or may, and deal with him as I desire to be dealt with by others. Further also that I faithfully labor so that I may be able to relieve the needy. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, I suppose that this is one of those commandments that we might go through and listen to the truth about it, but we are tempted and prone to say, well, if there's a commandment I'm free of and is not a concern to me, it's this one. And thus, do not see the reality of the matter, which is this is a commandment that very much exposes how truly sinful and wicked we are in our own nature a commandment that we violate all the time and without hardly a thought. Included in those thoughts that we might also have is perhaps that violating this commandment is not only infrequent with us, but not so serious. That God's attitude with regard to this commandment isn't perhaps his attitude with regard to cursing and swearing or sexual sins as we covered in the seventh commandment. But none of these things would be true. If you read the book of Amos, if you read all the prophets, really, you will discover some things. Number one, that among the many sins of the children of Israel and the children of Judah, prior to being destroyed or scattered or taken into captivity was not only idolatry but also theft and stealing, which took the form especially of oppressing the poor and the helpless. And God speaks often of how wicked that was and what an expression of their wickedness and idolatry. The fact that God destroyed them, that God scattered them, 
and God took them into captivity ought to indicate how serious these sins really are. These are sins that are not only public, uh, punished by the magistrate, and in former times, often even by death, but that God punishes with death. The Eighth Commandment addresses our calling with regard to God's gifts. It's evident from question and answer 110 where it speaks about the abuse and waste of God's gifts. And does not only speak about the abuse and waste of those gifts, but the theft and robberies of those gifts. It really, in other words, covers everything far more than we can imagine. Consider with me this morning. Theft, abuse, and waste of God's gifts. The article that we consider this morning makes clear that God's gifts literally refers to everything, literally to everything that exists, that is, everything that you own and I own. If you want to know the breadth and the width, therefore, of the commandment, consider that it literally addresses everything. Everything that you own, that you touch, and everything even that is in your heart. It covers not only the gifts that God gives to the neighbor that we are forbidden to appropriate to ourselves by illicit means, but the gifts that God gives to us. That's evident when question and answer 110 says that we are to promote the advantage and salvation of the neighbor. Well, how are you going to do that? And the answer is, with the gifts that God gives. So this commandment addresses not simply what God gives to others, but what God gives to you. It involves labor, faithful labor, so that I might relieve the needy. So it includes the gift of a job, a gift of earning money. But not only that, what we tend to forget is the commandment doesn't simply cover physical gifts, the things we call money and property and real estate, things we can touch and handle and drive and own, but spiritual gifts. That should be evident to us, even though it's not directly stated, when in the first place you understand that the commandment forbids covetousness. Now, covetousness has to do with what's in your heart, has to do with your attitude and your thinking with regard to physical gifts. And the antidote to covetousness is contentment and patience. So the commandment does concern spiritual matters and spiritual things, but consider also 
this? What is the commandment really about? When God forbids certain behavior with regard to physical, earthly property and things, and God commands us to promote the advantage and welfare of our neighbor, what is underlying all that? And the answer is love. This commandment is about love of God and love of the neighbor. And you see, love isn't ever simply an attitude. It's not simply what we feel or emotions. Love is about what we do. It's about how we behave. And this commandment comes along and it says, what you do with your property, what you do with your earthly gifts, what you do with your neighbor's property and earthly gifts flows out of and is a reflection of what's in your heart, love. And consider that that also is a gift of God. You cannot and will not love your neighbor unless God gives that love to you, unless he loves you. So this commandment is exceedingly broad. Consider also that this commandment, that being true, governs the whole vast sphere of life that we call government. This is the commandment where what government is and what it should do comes into place. This is the commandment that itself demands that the government carry out certain duties. It mentions the magistrate who is to use not the spiritual sword given to the church, but the physical sword, physical punishment to punish the thief and the robber. This is the commandment, therefore, that says something about the legitimacy as well as the calling of government, and we ought to consider that. <clears throat> this is the commandment that regulates the Lord's attitude and therefore ours with regard to taxes and paying taxes and our attitude with regard <clears throat> to the state whom God gives this calling. This commandment addresses the whole vast area of our life that we call the workplace. The workplace wherein we faithfully labor to relieve the needy and to provide for ourselves and our families, to provide for our neighbor. This commandment, therefore, addresses not simply your earthly, physical, personal life, but where you work and labor, and that whether you be an employer or an employee. Not only that, but consider that the commandment addresses and speaks about the whole vast area of our life we call the marketplace. What now do we do with that which we earn in our job and in our labors? While we buy and sell, we barter and we trade. 
And we do that with the neighbor. And we're doing this all the time. So, not to belabor the point, but I challenge anyone here to give or name an area of their life that this commandment does not address. Even our activities on the Sabbath day in God's house of worship are impacted by this commandment. For we worship in a place of property, a place that is titled. And we ourselves are all here as physical human beings, wearing clothes and being fed. The point is, this commandment doesn't simply address a few behaviors and activities, especially that are punishable by the magistrate. That's the point that this article is trying to make. And even when it makes that point, it is very clear in making sure that the child of God understands that his attitude has to be that of the Lord himself, and that's reflected in that we consider as sin, and therefore we consider as punishable before God things that the state and the government might not consider theft at all, which is quite remarkable. It is quite remarkable that using the words of the canons, the glimmerings of natural light that exists in the world, that is, some knowledge of God and of right and wrong includes this. Among the things, therefore, that God will judge all men and why men are without excuse before God in the judgment day is that what is reflected here even in the commandment all men ought to know right and wrong with regard to property and money and everything else simply from how we want others to deal with ourselves. This we know as the golden rule. It's actually the rule of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that rule of our Lord Jesus Christ extends into all dealings with one another. Not simply attitude, but transactions, property, money. And we all know how we want to be dealt with. And this is a very simple and plain rule that ought to make clear everything that's written here. False coins and measures, incidentally, or not incidentally, not coincidentally, brought up in Amos. Hope you notice that. Among the sins of the children of Israel for which he was about to judge them and judge them by removing them from the face of the earth as a nation and as a people were not only that they were buying and selling God's people, especially the poor, that was happening by loaning them money and doing so with usury, that is, with interest, which was forbidden.
But then when the poor couldn't repay those loans, then they took them as slaves, also forbidden, really, because it was a perpetual thing. He violated many, many of God's laws. But they were using the courts, and they were using the magistrates to carry out this work. And if that weren't enough, they couldn't wait for the Sabbath day to be over so they could get out into their fields and plant their corn. And then when they sold their corn, they changed the size of the bushel basket. And they changed the weights on the balance, all, of course, in their own favor. And this was the way they lived their lives and then imagined that they were the Lord's people and they had the Lord's favor and blessing. And the Lord would have none of it. Now, all of that should have been obvious when the cheaters are very well that they themselves would be upset and angry if they were cheated. This is the simple principle that underlies this commandment, something really for the second point, but the point here is, think about how vast that is. All the interactions that have to do with business and property and life, and we have a very, very keen sense of justice and right when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to our property, when it comes to our money, when it comes to our life and the gifts of God, but then that all goes out the window when it comes to our neighbor. So the commandment speaks about thefts and robberies punishable by the magistrate, those things that ought to be obvious, and for which there are endless rules and laws and regulations, which means there are endless ways around these laws or to cheat these laws or to argue your justice in court or injustice and it keeps men magistrates jails jailers busy and full so much so that more and more the world is forsaking what it means to steal and to rob it's all pretty well known how if you walk into a bank with a gun and steal, you might never see freedom again if caught, locked away in jail for life. But if you wear a white collar and are in an office and with your computer and a few hacking techniques, steal money, or if you commit fraud with regard to securities and the selling and the theft of them, you might get the proverbial slap on the wrist. We're all well aware that such are things in our society that the government, the state, the magistrate doesn't really even hardly bother anymore with the theft of vehicles and many other such thefts. Let the insurance company pay for it. We have other things to do. Be that as it may, that thinking may not infect the church, let alone govern our thinking that while these therefore are the only things that God forbids. I want to especially spend a little time also this morning 
by emphasizing what comes at the end. Some of this overlaps with the basis, but we'll do our best. Notice, not only does it cover very broadly thefts and robberies and fraud of any kind, any other way, forbidden by God, and you might say, well, where is that forbidden? And again, the broad answer really is you should know that in your own heart. If you wouldn't want it done to you, then you shouldn't do it to others. But God's Word covers uh, quite a bit of that. But then notice this too, as also all covetous, all abuse, and waste of His gifts. It's worth pointing that out. Now the word abuse itself indicates there's some basis for this, but let's just notice for now that abuse of God's gifts is basically this. Abuse is unauthorized use. Abuse is to take a certain authority and power that comes with a gift. And we'll talk a little bit about where that comes from. And to use it in a way that God does not intend or to use it strictly on yourself. Bring this up and belabor it because I've run into the notion that abuse, whether it's sexual abuse or whether it's spousal abuse or abuse of all kinds is a fairly new concept. It's something that Me Too has sort of dreamed up and making us all miserable with regard to. Nothing true about that whatsoever. Search the Scriptures and you will find that abuse is an old, old concept in the Scripture. Here it is brought up in Scripture with regard to God's gifts. Abuse is a misuse. And what is the misuse applies for all abuse. It goes beyond what God demands or God requires. God intends certain things. Or God gives a certain authority and power, and then abuse is to go beyond that. So, for example, we may rightly speak about abusing the gifts God gives. Now, now understand this. This is a uniquely biblical concept, an idea, really. If you ask the world or you ask your old sinful nature, can you abuse God's gifts? The answer is, well, of course not. It's mine. It's mine. I get to do with it what I want. If God gives me a million dollars, I can do with it what I want. As long as I don't hurt my neighbor, we might add. As long as I'm not using it to hurt him. I can, I can buy this and I can buy that. And the answer of Scripture is, no, you can't. There is such a thing of abuse. And that applies not simply to individuals, but governments and people. And the point is, that you may just use things however you want, or abuse also includes using things strictly for yourself. I'm trying to avoid going into the basis for all this, but this is what that word is saying. It's saying that the government doesn't have the right to do whatever it wants with all the oil and all the natural resources that are found here in this land. It's not the sole determiner of these things. It may think it is, but it's not. Neither are you. You and I do not have the right to do whatever we want with whatever gifts we have. Otherwise, there's no such thing as abuse. 
And closely related to that, of course, is waste. Waste. There's such a thing as waste of God gifts. God gives property. God gives money. And exactly because we abuse it, we think we can do whatever we want with it, we also waste it. We buy way more than we need. Why borrow when you can buy it? And if you don't think we waste things, go look in your garage. Go look in your attic. Go look in your closet. Do we really need all that stuff? Well, at one point we said, yeah, yeah, I need this. Got to have it. Got to have it. And we somewhat reluctant to borrow because we ourselves borrow things and pay not back. It's who we are. So we just buy it. We think that's fine. My job is to accumulate all this stuff. It's all mine. I can do with it what I want. No, that's not true. That's not true. In fact, we probably violate this commandment more by the abuse and waste of God's gifts than anything. Consider only this. God gives to you a finite amount of time in your life. God calls you with that good gift to use it in love for himself and the neighbor. That's what he gave you that time for. That's why you are here. God brought you into this creation, a creation filled with gifts, filled with things. And you came in naked without a single thing. But just consider the time, let alone the life and everything else God gives. And God says, serve me, use all that to serve me, and then your neighbor. And we turn around and say, nope, I'm not going to do that. This is my time. And therefore, it's my money, it's my life, it's my wife, it's my children, it's my house, it's my car. It's mine, mine, mine. And then, even if we use it all wisely as we think, we're going to invest. We're going to invest in a good education. We're going to invest in good money management. We're going to invest in this, invest in that, so we get more and more and more and more. And do we use that for God and the neighbor too? No. Oh, we might give quite a bit and then soothe our conscience with all the robbery of God with our time by saying, well, that should bake up for it. So what underlies this commandment? What, what is it that makes God give this commandment? Is it arbitrary? Is it just there so that we can follow and feel good about ourselves? No, this commandment in the first place reflects who and what God is. It is here because this is the will of God, and understand this is the will of God, first of all, for himself. We serve a God who is three persons living in one being, and these persons live in a life of love one with another. And their life one with another is that whereby they promote the advantage of the other in a very real sense. They love one another and they give of themselves for one another. They do not rob. They do not steal. They do not say, well, this is mine and only mine. Back off. Get away. If we only knew how God lives his own life, how God the Father and God the Son live a life of love and fellowship and friendship in the Holy Spirit. 
And now this God comes and says, this is the life you will live as my children, as my people. So underlying this commandment is that in the first place. Second place is everything that you can see and touch and know and feel and everything that's not God outside of God, anything other than God, is a gift of God. It's a gift of God because God made it. God created it. Oh yes, it's true. God gives. Underlying the commandment is that God gives in such a way that things become your property in a very real sense. Our God is not the God of communism, which is no God, whereby everything belongs to the state or the community. No. Scripture recognizes, going way back, the principle of personal property and therefore mentions or teaches the principle of stewardship. But understand, the principle of stewardship is that you're a steward of it. It's property in the sense that God calls you to be responsible for the use of it and will require an answer about how you use it. But it remains God as Lord and King. It's not yours absolutely. It's yours to use for a time as, God sees, as long as God sees fit. And then he will require of you an answer. What did you do with what I gave you? What did you do with your time? What did you do with your love? What did you do with your brain? What did you do with your family? What did you do with your car and your house? What did you do? But make no mistake, God expects you to do something with it. We all know the parable about the guy that decided to go hide it, bury it. That was a waste of God's gifts. That was abomination to the Lord. Notice also then the principle underlying this is that God is sovereign in the distribution of all property. That's his that's as mysterious as God's distribution of salvation. God doesn't give all men faith. Doesn't give all men the same measure of grace who are given faith. So also, God doesn't give us all the same amount of time in this life. Doesn't give us all the same amount of goods and property. God is the one who is responsible that there are poor in the earth. And we have a calling to care for them. He's also the one who gives some people who are seemingly the most corrupt, wicked people on the face of the earth billions and billions of dollars that they seem to use all the time simply trying to hurt the church. But God determines that, not you, not me. Which brings out another point worth making, which is then if this is all true, this goes to show you that the greatest sin with regard to the Eighth Commandment is robbery of God and why we rob God. You see, here is where this commandment again and again is such a reflection of our idolatry. Amazing how they go together. When Israel is serving idols of silver and of gold, that is reflected, that service of those non-gods is reflected in their very thievery and oppression of the poor, their greed and covetousness. They go hand in hand. In other words, when we 
behave this way and act this way, it is simply a reflection of how self-centered and self-loving we are, even to the exclusion of the neighbor, that by nature we have no place in our heart for somebody other than ourselves. We may pretend otherwise, but it's all about us. We're idol worshipers, and idolatry and theft and stealing Abuse and waste of God's gifts go hand in hand. But the greatest theft and robbery is against God. When we steal from the neighbor, we're stealing from God. And we do that not only theologically, but practically and physically. Always amazing how these go together. The church today robs God of his glory and his honor and salvation takes the credit for that which God does, refuses to give God any recognition for what he does. Oh, he didn't really make this world in six days. That's impossible. We say so. And they rob God the glory as creator. He's not really in charge of things. He's not in control. These things just happen this way in that way. God doesn't determine what's right and wrong when it comes to property and money. I do. I may do with my things how I see fit. And God is displaced. God is gone. But consider why, especially in the church, that's such an abomination. It has to do with even more who God is. God is the God who, though he is rich, made himself poor. Such is the love of God for his neighbor that he gave his only begotten son, that we should not perish, but have everlasting life. Think about that now. When we rob God of his glory in matters theological, when we rob God of his glory in matters practical, when we behave as we do with our goods, I can buy whatever I want, do whatever I want, as long as I can afford it, I can hoard money how I want, I can waste, I can abuse, I can do these things. We do that against the God who not only owns everything, who has given every single gift that we have, who is the one who gave you those very things that you're talking that way and I'm talking that way about and said, I'm going to give it all up for you. Think about that. That was the baby lying in a manger. Why was he in the manger? Why did he come from such poor folk and associated with them? That's the love of God. That's the love of God in himself. That's the love of God for his neighbors and the covenant of grace. And it's especially bad with us, beloved. We claim to be those that give all the God the glory. Do we in fact love our neighbor and Do we give of God's gifts rightly? Yes, by the Spirit of God, we do. God has given us that. And God has given us that on the basis not of our goodness, but of Christ's goodness. And then we can instantly turn away from that and ignore that and talk the way we do, as if all things are ours. Yes. Even when we go out and buy whatever we want, 
or hit the buy button as much as we think we need to, we can be slapping our Lord Jesus Christ in the face and say to ourselves, well, it wasn't really all that necessary that he become poor, that poor. We're not that bad. Oh, yes, we are. So what is our calling in this regard? Well, our calling is to love this God and to repent of our thievery. When is the last time that we appeared before the Lord and said, Lord, I'm a thief. I didn't use the 24 hours I was given in this day the way I ought. I thought it was better that I spend the vast majority of this time on myself, shopping or being covetous or thinking how to get this from my neighbor or how can I catch up with my neighbor. How much time do we really spend before the Lord in prayer acknowledging how we steal and steal and steal and steal and then call it mine? How much time do we spend imagining the Lord really don't care about the gifts that he's given us? Or even imagine the great sin that we sin against God's own love for us. Our calling is to come before him and acknowledge that. Confess our sin. Let the Lord humble us with how selfish and self-centered we really are. Then to know his forgiveness in our Lord Jesus Christ, believe it all, our heart, mind, soul, and strength, that God forgives such sinners for us, and then in thankfulness for that gift, say to ourselves, nothing else matters. I don't live for me anymore. This wasn't given by God to me, for me. It was given by God for me, for my neighbor. I have a God who so cares for his neighbor that he saved a wretch like me, that I'm I'm at least going to give of what God's given me for them. That, O oh Lord, is our, that, O oh beloved, is our calling before God. This, we pray also, is the strength he gives us. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, O oh Lord, forgive our theft, forgive our selfishness and our pride, and we pray that the love that thou hast given us in our Lord Jesus Christ is a love that is not that of the world, but is the very same selfless love that gives of what we have been giving, given for the advantage of the other, that therein too we might show ourselves to be truly thy children in this world. We pray these things, O Lord, with the understanding, humbly, that there is no such thing in ourselves. So grant it for Jesus' sake. Amen.